Well, good morning. You guys ready for Thanksgiving? Ready for all that food? And are you ready for the question? You know, it seems to me that every family has someone, and they're usually self-designated. They see it as their job to make sure that our focus isn't on the turkey or the sweet potatoes, the stuffing and all. And they make sure that our focus doesn't get off onto the football or the Black Friday deals or even onto family traditions. And, you know, they're the ones who who are always stopping us mid-mill and asking if everyone would please share that thing that they are most thankful for this year. You know, they, usually they're that person who has already done the 30-day, you know, thankfulness challenge on Instagram, and posting about, you know, caramel apple spiced lattes or something that they just have added so much to their life. <laughs> they're the person that, that is journaled daily for the last week about all the things that they're thankful for. Me? I'm kind of on the other end of the spectrum. I'm thinking, can we talk about this after you pass the cranberries? <laughs> you know, I, I know I've got lots to be thankful for. But the honest truth is, I just don't always feel very thankful. And it really, it makes me wonder, what's the difference between those truly thankful people and the rest of us? I think it's more than just the whole optimist versus pessimist thing. I mean, I'll admit that I'm often a pessimist, but, you know, understand this. The pessimist always assuming that things are going to go badly. On average, they will end up being more thankful because, hold on, wait for this. Things don't always go badly. I mean, just the law of averages, they can't. And so the pessimist is often pleasantly surprised by something not blowing up. The optimist, on the other hand, always thinks things are going to be fine. But again, the law of averages tells you they won't always be fine. So the optimist is often disappointed when things do blow up. So the pessimist ought to be more thankful than the optimist just by nature. But I don't think that's what it is either. I don't think thankfulness is based on your uh, material circumstances. You know, I've just met far too many people in places like Kenya or India who have so very little, and yet they absolutely leak thankfulness. They are just overflowing with it, despite the little that they have. Here's what I think it is. I think fake thankfulness is all about critical mass. Have you met the Shannon's little girl, Marley? Marley is the world's best hugger. When it comes to hugging, this little girl is all in. I mean, all in. It is not uncommon for her to launch herself through the air toward the target of her next hug, like a linebacker. But it's okay because Marley weighs in at like four and a half ounces. (laughs) The impact of her velocity is mitigated by her lack of mass. But if Marley were six foot six and 270 pounds and was running at me full steam, I'd hide. (laughs) Because that would be truly a critical, maybe terminal mass. Here's my point. Some people have a critical mass of thankfulness. 
there's something big that they are thankful for and that thankfulness is significant enough to move them consistently toward an attitude of thankfulness. And you know, honestly, the only thing that is massive enough to move us consistently towards thankfulness is thankfulness for the grace of God, for the salvation that we have in Christ. You know, it, it's only in that dynamic that I can make any sense out of our passage this morning. Uh, this morning we're in 1 Samuel chapter 2. We, we finished up chapter 1 last week, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. And, and before we begin to dig into that, I want to remind you as we read this passage that we are picking up right after Hannah, who, who for so very long, desperately longed to have children. We're picking up right after Hannah leaves her only child there at the tabernacle in Shiloh, once again becoming childless. And yet, even in that moment, Hannah is somehow thankful, even rejoicing. Well, let's take a look at our passage. Will you grab your Bible, open to 1 Samuel chapter 2, and will you stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word? I'll read our passage. I encourage you to follow along, not only as we read the passage, but as we study through it. Beginning in verse 1, it says this, Hannah prayed, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. And there is no rock like our God. Do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and actions are weighed by him. The bows of warriors are broken, but the feeble are clothed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are starving hunger no more. The woman who is childless gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some down to Sheol and he raises others up. The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. He seats them with noblemen and gives them a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world on them. He guards the steps of his faithful ones, but the wicked perish in darkness. For a person does not prevail by his own strength. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy served the Lord in the presence of the priest Eli. Let's pray. Father, we ask, Lord, that this morning you'd speak to our hearts, that you'd, you'd sharpen our minds. Lord, give us the ability not only to understand what it is that you've written, but to, uh, to rightly perceive what it is that you would speak to us from this passage this morning. 
God, more than that, give us a, a softness, a receptivity to what it is that you would like to say to us. Give us a willingness, Lord, to grab hold of it. Lord, uh, an attitude of, of, of holding on to what you say, refusing to let go of it until it gets worked into our lives. Lord, we want that more than anything. Work that in us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Can be seated. Seems strange to me. I imagine it probably seems strange to you as well that Hannah, in the midst of this particular moment, is thankful. I mean... Remember, this is the woman we read about in chapter 1 who wanted children more than she wanted absolutely anything else in life. And yet here she is, just after having handed over her so very longed-for son, here is Hannah bursting forth with a stream of praise and worship that is focused on God's goodness and his power and his mercy toward the hurting. I look at that and I think, how does that work? I would contend that Hannah has joy even in the midst of her circumstances, even in the midst of the brokenness that I am sure she feels because she is focused on something greater than her present circumstances. She is experiencing this moment through the lens of something greater. Consider this. She isn't viewing God through the lens of her story, which is how we are prone to do this, but rather Hannah is viewing her story through the lens of God's truth. Now think about that for a minute. Think about that for a minute, because that's a game changer right there. That changes so much. If you and I, if we can learn to, to consider our lives not um, as the big story, but as the small part of God's larger story, if we try to understand God as if he is a small part of our larger story, we are going to be nothing but frustrated and confused and disappointed all through our lives. But if we can learn to see our lives as a small part of God's larger story, we're going to see that that changes our perspective greatly. You see, Hannah here is able to give thanks, not because she got a child, because think about it. She no longer has a child. God has her child. God has Samuel there at the tabernacle. She just left little Samuel. Rather, Hannah is thankful because of who God is and because of what it is that her God can do and because what it is that her God is doing, not to meet her expectations for her current circumstances, but rather to redeem her and all of mankind. What Hannah is thankful for is the fact that she has been granted the privilege of playing a role 
in God's greater story of redemption. She has played a role in God placing his man where it is that he wants him in order to move forward the story of redemption. You see, Hannah's focus is on God's story, and that is the critical mass that keeps her thankful in the midst of her circumstances. Well, let's begin to look at this bit by bit. Having handed off her little Samuel to the priest Eli, in verse 1 it says, Hannah prayed. And she prays this, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. I, what an unthinkably hard thing for Hannah to do. I, I, I can't imagine a mom uh, dropping off, leaving behind her small child, especially a, a mom like Hannah, who for so long had just deeply longed for a child, who had suffered so much at the, at the hands of Penina, had waited so long for God to answer this prayer. I, I'm confident that Hannah grieved this loss. I doubt that she was just always rejoicing. And yet it's clear here that in the midst of what I'm sure was very real grief, there was also very real joy. You see, Hannah rejoiced, notice this, in the Lord. It doesn't say she rejoiced in her circumstances. She wasn't rejoicing because of her circumstances. But in the midst of her circumstances, she was rejoicing in the Lord. And notice as well what it says, she rejoiced in his salvation. You see, she was seeing her life through the lens of God's truth. She was seeing her story as one small part of God's story, not the other way around. And so here she is after just a few short years of motherhood. Once again, she is childless. But, but God now has his man in place. And so that is what she rejoices over. Her son Samuel gets to be a part of God's plan. And she's been given the honor of placing him into God's hands. Notice, too, that Hannah was able to do what she did because God strengthened her. This, this phrase that she uses, my horn was lifted up. That's an ancient word picture that, that communicates that she has been made strong by the Lord. In other words, Hannah is saying, this isn't about my strength. This isn't that I am able to do this, but this is something that God has strengthened me. God has enabled me to do what I could never have done on my own. She's not boasting about her greatness. She is boasting about God's greatness. In fact, in verse 2, she says this, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and actions are weighed by him. You know, the, the truth is anyone who boasts in their own greatness is simply a fool. <laughs> I would certainly never boast about my grasp of physics while standing next to Albert Einstein. Um, so how could I ever boast about anything knowing that I am always standing 
in the presence of God. Understand this, the Lord is utterly unique beyond us in his glory, in his power, in his absolute perfection. There is none who is like God. God alone is all-powerful. It is only God who is ever-present. And it's only God who is all-knowing. You know, remembering that gives me great hope. Because there are a lot of times in life when I just don't understand why things are going the way that they're going. Uh, there are a lot of times in life that things just don't turn out the way that I wanted them to, the way that I think, thought that they would, or, or the way that I think that they should turn out. But even in the midst of that, I can know, even if I don't understand, God does. God does, and he's got it all under control. Uh, things may look to me in this moment to be rather upside down. But I know that I have a God who can turn things right side up. Things may not look like, uh, like they're heading towards a good end from my perspective. But I know this. I serve a God who can do anything and who can rescue me out of any situation. Well, what all can God do? Look at verse 4. The bows of the warriors are broken, but the feeble are clothed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are starving hunger no more. The woman who is childless gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some down to Sheol, that is to the grave, and he raises others up. The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. He seats them with noblemen and gives them a throne of honor. You know, that covers pretty much any circumstance that we can face, doesn't it? And no matter what your situation is, understand this. God can rescue you out of it. He can reverse it no matter how desperate your situation is. Even if you're a barren woman who has just given her one and only son back to God, nothing is out of his reach. Now, what we're reading here, I think, obviously, is more than just a blurted out prayer of an overwhelmed mom. This is a divinely inspired psalm. It's, it's a thoughtfully composed song of praise to God. And Hannah certainly might have been incredibly gifted in this. As she may have been inspired by the Holy Spirit in the moment to spontaneously pray this beautiful song. Uh, but I think it's far more likely that this was an existing song of worship, a song that Hannah knew and that a song that became her expression of praise in the midst of that moment. One reason I, I think that is that, well, Hannah didn't have seven children. Uh, the song here, in verse 5, describes uh, the woman who was barren has seven children. Uh, but we learn later on in verse 21 uh, that the Lord gave Hannah five children. Uh, 
Now, you could stretch that to six if you claim that Samuel isn't included in those original five, uh, but you can't get to seven. So I think this is a song that Hannah adopted to express her heart of praise to the Lord. And I mention that because I think it's good for us who are maybe a little less than eloquent, who, who can't always find the right words in the moment, it's good for us to know that we can take the words of the psalmist or even of some worship song and we can adopt those words to, to help give expression to our hearts. That's it, I should warn you. Pay attention to the theology of the songs you sing. Not every popular worship song these days is biblically sound. Pay attention to what you're singing. A good and biblically sound worship song, though, is a powerful thing, isn't it? It can lift you out of the pit and into the very presence of God. It can move you out of the, uh, out of the moment and into an eternal perspective. I often turn to worship when I'm struggling, when I'm feeling overwhelmed. Uh, there's something about singing out loud the truth about proclaiming God's goodness that just lifts my spirits and cleanses my mind. Worship does that. And it does it not by focusing me upon my situation or upon myself, but by shifting my focus off of me and onto God himself, onto who he is and what it is he can and he is doing. And that's exactly where Hannah's prayer goes. Look at part with you, verse 8. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world on them. In other words, he is our creator. But that isn't it. He, he also guards the steps of his faithful ones. Uh, but the wicked perish in darkness, for a person does not prevail by his own strength. In other words, God is our sovereign protector in the midst of this mess. It also says that those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He is also the final judge. And so here Hannah declares that God is our creator, that he is our sovereign protector, and that he is also our final judge. So God is the beginning. He is here in the midst of the messy middle. And he is also the end of all things. God is our creator. He, he made everything that exists. Colossians 1.16 says that we were created through him and for him. Think about that for a minute. Uh, from the vastness of the universe. I mean, picture in your mind on a dark, starry night. Just how overwhelming it is to try to comprehend all that the eye can take in of the universe. He created that. And then think about looking into the eyes of a newborn baby. <laughs> he created that too. God made them both and he made them for his glory and for his enjoyment. God created all things and he is also here with us in the messy middle and in the midst of this mess, he is sovereign. 
he is in control. As Ephesians 1.11 says, God works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. God is working in the midst of the chaos of this life to bring everything to the place that he desires it to be. You know, that, that's a comforting thought, isn't it? There are many things that happen in this life that, that just utterly confound my understanding. And yet I can know this to be true. God's word teaches clearly that God is good. He is good. And he knows and he is doing what is best for us. And that even when I can't see it, he is sovereign. He is in control. He's sovereign in the midst of this mess, but he also will be the end of this mess. He will judge and he will set right all sin and rebellion and wickedness. He will heal all hurts. He will remove all pain. The day will come and we long for it when God will balance the scales of justice, when he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, where death will be no more, grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And when you and I, when we stop and we consider, we remember who God is and what it is that he has promised to do. When we consider not only this moment in time, but the reality of eternity that lifts us out of discouragement and into a place of worship. Now, before we close this out, I want us to take a closer look partway through verse 10. There it says this, Hannah prays he will give power to his king and he will lift up the horn of his anointed. And so I'm always hounding you that you need to remember the context of whatever passage it is that we're studying. So stop for a minute and quickly remind yourself of the context of this passage. Have you thought of the fact that Israel does not yet have a king? That the nation at this point is a coalition of tribes? So who is this king that Hannah says will be exalted. You know, no matter how you read this, what she says here is prophetic. If she's talking about Saul and David and company, that, that's amazing. But I think it's bigger than that. I think that she's talking here about Jesus. Because more than anyone else, Jesus is God's anointed. That word anointed, it comes to us through the Greek, but you bring that same word, that same concept through the Hebrew language, and we get the word Messiah. He is God's Messiah. That's, that's what Hannah is giving thanks here for. And it's that thought that brings this whole picture together for me. I, I think that in some small way here, Hannah was able to see that somehow by, by her keeping her promise to God, and think about this and think about what she did. She surrendered her one and only son. 
And by doing that, she became a part of God's eternal plan of redemption. By her doing that, her son Samuel played his part in God's plan of redemption in the coming of the Messiah. I, I think it's, it's this concept that Hannah understood that there was something far bigger than just her and her life and her desires. I think that's why what we read here today isn't a, a narrowly focused song of thanks to God for working in, in Hannah's current situation uh, for satisfying her great longing, not with a child, but with full surrender to himself, uh, but rather what we read here today is Hannah praising God for the big picture. And not for her minute details, but for his grand plan of redemption, his sovereignty, and in the end, for him sending his anointed one, his Messiah, our Savior. I reflect on Hannah's prayer her song of praise here. I can't help but to think that it, it's something that we need to pay attention to. You and I, those who are feeling down or defeated, those who are struggling, those who are finding life to be just plain hard right now, we need to step back. And I know this isn't easy to do, but we need to step back and we need to try to see from an eternal perspective. We need to view today with an understanding that uh, this isn't the whole story. This is only a small part of the story and the story is not yet over. We have not yet come to that day when God will set all things right. Complete justice has not yet arrived. <clears throat> but even here in the midst of the messy middle, God is still in control. He is still at work bringing all things into compliance with his will, bringing all things toward the redemption of us. We need to step back. We need to try to see ourselves not in the context of our circumstances, but in the context of God's plan of redemption. We need to join King David in asking the Lord, as he does in Psalm 51, to restore the joy of your salvation to me and to sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. I think that last part, that last part is, is really the, uh, the first part for us, asking God to give us a willingness. Oh, I'm so stupidly stubborn sometimes uh, that I'll even fight the Lord on wanting uh, to have joy that is based upon uh, my salvation. Uh, I am so set on having my joy, my pleasure set and based upon the things of this world. I've got to ask the Lord, God, even give me a willing spirit. Give me a heart that is willing to have my joy 
based upon the salvation that you have wrought for me. We need to step back and surrender ourselves fully to the Lord, seeking to find our satisfaction not in the things that we want, not in getting the results that we desire, but in Christ. We need to pray for ourselves what Paul prays for us in Romans 15. There he says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you this, friends. We can't get to that place on our own. It truly is something that has to come by the power of the Holy Spirit, by God doing a work within our lives. The only way for me to overflow with hope is for me to be filled with hope by the Holy Spirit. And that's not a work that I can do. But it is something that Jesus has promised me if I ask God that he will do. He's a good father who knows how to give good gifts. So let's ask him. Let's ask him to fill us. Let's ask him to refresh within our hearts or maybe to birth within our hearts for the first time. A joy that is based not upon our circumstances or our outlook, but that is based upon his salvation. The fact that we have been saved by grace. We have been cleansed from sin and we have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Let's stand let's pray together. Father, we, we look to you. We need you, Lord. We need you to plant within us even the, the willingness, the desire to have our hearts and minds, our hopes and our joy built upon, shaped by that which you have done, our salvation. God, I pray that you would work within us, that you would give us the ability to step back from the midst of our, our circumstances and to see life differently. God, I pray that you would free us from seeing you as a small part of our life story and rather see our lives as a small part of your greater story. Work that change into us, Lord. Give us the perseverance to hang on to that, to grip it, to not let go until it's worked into us. God, we ask you to do it. Overflow us with your joy. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.